Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. Read with Michelle Martin. It was the disappearance of a commercial airline that sent shockwaves throughout the world. How in this technological age could a Boeing 777 just disappear without a trace? On the 8th of March, seven years ago, Malaysian Airlines flight MH370 en route from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing with 239 people on board vanished. Good night, Malaysia 370 were the last words anyone heard from the cop pit of that flight. It is one of aviation's greatest mysteries. There have been fevered discussions and theories around what happened. Was it a case of terrorism, a third party involved? Was it pilot error, depressurization, a fire on board? There's been many discussions around those theories. On the seventh anniversary of the disappearance of the plane, A new book, an investigative account of the disappearance of that doomed flight, has been published, written by journalist Florence Dichangy. Florence wrote for the French daily newspaper Le Monde following the plane's disappearance. We take a closer look at her new book, The Disappearing Act, The Impossible Case of MH370. It's out. It's available on all good bookstores, uh, bookstores shelves. Florence Dichangy, welcome. Thank you, Michelle. Good to have you here. Now, there is an official explanation for what happened to that plane. Anyone can read it, the safety investigative report online uh, that said the plane crashed in the southern Indian Ocean, that there is a lack of evidence to determine with any certainty the reasons that the aircraft diverted from its route plan. It says the report that the change in the flight path likely resulted from manual inputs, but it doesn't go further beyond that, to give an explanation of why the aircraft flew into the southern Indian Ocean. What does your book say about this official narrative? Well, uh, the first part um, of uh, the book and of my investigation really has concentrated on um, dismantling and uh, the, the official narrative and looking at trying to find what was it based on and What I came up with was basically the certitude, and it's a bit hard to say when you're a journalist, mm. but the almost certitude um, that the official narrative is a complete fabrication. Basically, there is no proof, no solid proof that there was the U-turn, as it's been described, mm. that the plane has flown over Malaysia, that it went up the uh, Malacca Strait, and even that it ended in the southern Indian Ocean. So that's the very uh, most important part of my work, I think, is first to raise awareness to the fact that the official narrative, as it has been presented by the authorities at the time, is basically fake. And uh, the report that you mentioned is very interesting because on the one hand, it's a little bit consistent with this official narrative, but it was very useful to me to actually prove that the official narrative does not hold because the strongest argument that I found mm. to discredit the official narrative are actually in the official report. Can you give us some examples? I mean, what was the first sign that there are inconsistencies that cannot be looked away from? Okay, well, for example, the U-turn, and that only came later. You know, we, we are told that the MH370 did a, an incredible U-turn In the official report, you realize that the experts 
have tried to recreate this U-turn according to the angle, and basically they've done seven scenarios, scenario, and there is only one with all kind of extreme if and if and if and if, then just about you could possibly recreate this U-turn. So basically, in other words, this U-turn is beyond the capability of a B777. But then there is another thing which is incredible, is that this U-turn was supposed to have taken place at the waypoint Igari. And what you see in the, final, in the, in the official report is that the plane was still, under, uh, still seen by primary radar at the following waypoint. So how can it be, how can it do a U-turn at Igari if it's still flying in its normal direction um, 37 miles later? And then you also have the fact that it supposedly turned its transponder off. That's what we were told. But then you see, again, in the official report that the way the plane disappeared from the radar screens is progressive. It took like almost 40 seconds for two collections of signals, one is called mode C, one is called mode S, to come off the screens uh, in Vietnam and in Kuala Lumpur. So uh, that shows that the transponder was not turned off as we've been told. And that's actually one of the clues that I got to come to my jamming uh, scenario. But basically, there is incredible evidence in the official documents that the official narrative is, mm, doesn't hold, basically. All right. There are many, many fevered theories about what happened to that plane. Why did it disappear? Many families still at a loss of what happened to their loved ones. Can you rule some of the theories out, like pilot error or a fire on board, for example? Um, I tried to look very closely at uh, the, the pilot, uh, the, the captain, um, Zahari Harmachar, and contrary to what has uh, been said about him at the beginning by a lot of, including, uh, I mean, mostly uh, media, uh, I found that the man was uh, probably completely uh, sound uh, of mind and a very good pilot, no suicidal uh, ideas whatsoever. So that helped me a lot also in my reasoning because I had to come up with something where the pilot was possibly, I mean, was at the top of his game. And he would have done everything he could to save um, his, um, his plane. When it comes to that pilot, Zahari Ahmad Shah, I wonder if you looked at the fact that he had a home simulator and there was a flight path that so closely matched the final flight of MH370 or what we believe the final flight was. Did that, was that uncanny for you? Uh, the fact that he has a home uh, simulator, actually even uh, two of them, is actually the proof that he's incredibly passionate about uh, his job. And he was doing all kinds of videos and he was teaching and all his students said that he was a fantastic uh, you know, teacher. He was also an, an instructor with a Malaysia airline. He had basically all the, all the jobs you, you could have as a, as a very uh, experimented uh, pilot. Now, the fact that he supposedly tried a similar flight on his simulator. In, on his simulator. Mm. It's a very long and complicated story that I explore in my book, and which is, in, which is based, I believe, on a misunderstanding and possibly on planted 
evidence in the Malaysian uh, police. So that's a very complicated story, and I, I can't explain it all, but I really look in detail in the, um, in the book. All right. So there, are there any theories that you can definitively rule out? You know, depressurization, fire on board, sort of the, the accidental, possible accidental explanations for what happened. Have you ruled those out? Um, I think that the, um, the fire on board is actually the, the favorite explanation by most uh, pilots mm. and the fact that there were uh, lithium batteries, you know, 200 kilos of them, and the fact that we have seen uh, tragic uh, accidents and catastrophes happening because of fires with lithium batteries uh, made that scenario uh, very possible. Also, the fa- because... Um, the authorities, after that um, accident, changed very quickly rules and rulings related to the transport of uh, lithium batteries. Made me think for a while that this could have been uh, the um, the real happening. But then you wonder: well, then why not admit to it? Why all this cover-up? Why did we not find anything about uh, this plane? And then, because of other clues, I had to come up with something a bit more complicated. But I agree that the the fire, possibly due to uh, lithium batteries in the hold, is um, was initially the most uh, likely and sensible uh, scenario. You know, some have questioned the cargo, as you say, the lithium-ion batteries. And I'm reading the safety report again, the safety investigation report, and it says... MH370 did not carry any cargo classified as dangerous goods. It says two cargo items of interest, the lithium-ion batteries and the mangosteens, which were carried on MH370, had also been transported via scheduled flights on MAS before and after the event, and that these items were packed and loaded according to standard operating procedures. So it seems to dismiss um, you know, the lithium-ion batteries. Were there tons of electronic equipment that were not x-rayed before loaded, that were escorted onto that plane? Did you find anything problematic about the cargo? Yeah, exa- uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it's interesting because, you know, sometimes they point you towards the things that are problematic but not that serious. Mm. And at the time, a lot of noise was made about the mangosteen, you know, four and a half tons of them, and they were not of season, and there are still many question marks over this uh, cargo. But we, we saw that mangosteens, so-called mangosteens, were transported in all the MH370 flights before that one and after that one. So it was probably not the, 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 the mangosteen. And the lithium batteries, yes, they are dangerous, but they were well-wrapped, etc., and it was 200 kilos, it was allowed. Yes. Now, you had these 2.5 tons of electronic um, equipment uh, wrapped and sent over by Motorola. And that one is actually a very problematic one because it is very poorly documented. It is described as being turkey walkies and battery chargers, so kind of, you know, cheap and light and irrelevant. But you learn in the official documents that it has been loaded without being scanned. And this is an absolute no, no in civil aviation. Mm. You do not load anything on in the hold of a plane without it being scanned, let alone when it's a passenger plane. And here we have 2.5 tons 
of electronics, so it's very heavy. Mm. And the reason given is that it was too big to go through the machine, to the X-ray machines. But I'm sorry, if it's talkie walkies and battery chargers, it's not too big to go through. Uh, so it really shows that it's not what it was said to be. And even more incredible, you discover, and it's only written once in the official report, but you, you discover that this very odd cargo has been delivered to Kuala Lumpur International Airport under escort. So if you look at clues as something odd and suspicious in this plane, and you come across a cargo which has not been x-rayed and which has been delivered under escort, you are like, oh, maybe I'm onto something here. Yeah, I, what I love about your book is, you know, you, you raise questions that you can't look away from in, in your book. The book that we're reading today is The Disappearing Act, The Impossible Case of MH370, written by journalist Florence Dichangy. Florence, when the plane disappears from radar 40 minutes after it takes off, what do you believe has happened? Well, at the moment, my best uh, my best assumption um, is the fact that when it disappears, it is actually jammed. And uh, I came to that conclusion based on intelligence information I had from the very beginning. Someone did, uh, a very high uh, intelligence source, mentioned that there were two U.S. AWACS planes on site, meaning at the place where the MH370 disappeared. AWACS are these, you know, eyes-in-the-sky uh, planes. They're like uh, flying radar stations, very powerful, etc. And I, I knew that from the very beginning because, um, but honestly, I didn't know what to do with this information. To me, the fact that there were two AWACS there and we knew there would be um, military exercises soon after that, etc. So, it was not necessarily meaningful, but years later, at least three or four years later, I had another uh, discussion with a U.S. Uh, former um, air uh, person, military, um, who told me, we discussed AWACS, and he told me, oh, their jamming capability are phenomenal. And that's when I had a bit of an epiphany, and I really, I thought, I got it. That's why the... the the enigma, the key of the enigma that was given to me initially of the two AWACS on site was indeed the key of the enigma because now I understand that the plane may have been kind of sandwiched between these two AWACS. And then I looked at a few other clues like what I described before, the transponder, you know, I mean the, the signal of the plane disappearing progressively that's much more consistent with a jamming of the plane. And then there are at least three or four other clues mm. that are super consistent with the fact that the plane actually has been jammed. So that's the beginning of the new scenario. And I'm pretty sure of that one. I'm not so sure about uh, the end of it, but yeah. That's where I wanted to go. So at the start, you <laughs> believe it was cloaked. And is that the point where um, the disaster happens or do you think that happens later? I think it happened later uh, because there is another um, phenomenon which has not been explained and it, which is documented is the fact that the 225, 
So it's about one hour and five minutes after the plane um, started disappearing from the secondary radar. At 2.25, the SATCOM comes back. It re-logs on. And no one could explain that. But then I realized that it means basically that the plane can communicate again. It means that it's not jammed anymore. So you look on the map at where would the plane be at that time, and it's very easy because the, the cruising speed uh, of B triple seven is kind of constant, so it's pretty precise. And you realize that that's when the plane is arriving very close to Chinese airspace. And obviously, if the scenario that I have come up with is the real one, with with American planes clo- uh, cloaking and being around this. MH370, there is no way they can get anywhere near the Chinese airspace, so they have to back off. And the moment they back off, the SATCOM logs on again. So that was another thing. Wow, it's incredibly fitting. And then you look at uh, the dialogues between the traffic controllers in Vietnam and the Malaysian Airline Operations Center which suddenly says the plane is downloading its position at that very moment. So it also seems to, to show that one hour and a few minutes after the operation of cloaking in a way took place, the plane is live for a few minutes. But then I assume that the disaster took place shortly in that, probably in the next 10 to 20 minutes after that. And without giving too much away, because we do want listeners to pick up your book, do you think the disaster <laughs> involves a third party outside of the plane, so to speak? Oh, well, definitely. I mean, if what I'm saying now is true, we already have the U.S. there. If the plane crashed nearby Vietnam, we obviously have the Vietnam there. It's also very close to China, so China would not let something as big as that happen without being involved one way or the other. Malaysia, too. So I don't think it's one third party. It's, and, and then France found the flop wrong and has been very opaque with it, and etc., uh, etc. Et so I think uh, there are many uh, other parties involved. Too many, yeah. You say that you don't want to give, uh, it's not for you to give an answer, but does your book uh, share a, a unified, possible, cohesive argument for what happened to the plane, do you think? Uh, I think it uh, should make everyone convinced that the official narrative is unacceptable. Mm-hmm. As I always say, people have said it was incredible, and I keep saying, please, don't say it is incredible. Say it is not credible. And if people, the whole people, I mean, the, the public opinion of the entire world realizes that this is a massive lie and unacceptable fabrication of a story, then we will have the real story that will, uh, will come out. And I think what I found I've, and, and put together mm-hmm. should give enough clues to people to realize that truth is completely different. But I'm not claiming that I have 100% of the real story. I, I, I'm still researching it, actually, and, mm-hmm. and I'm sure people w- would be able to help me uh, put it together. Spoken like a true journalist, Florence. It's an incredible book. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you very much. My pleasure. She's Florence Dichangy. We've been reading her book, The Disappearing Act, The Impossible Case of MH370.
To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.